right. We are going to, uh, we're going to cover a topic because of, from talking to these guys and then over the last two weeks, maybe three weeks, I kept having these conversations with people about their faith, just faith in the kind of the general sense. Like, I don't know where my faith is at. I don't know what my faith is in. I don't know if I have enough faith. And uh, it, I, you ever just feel like something comes up repetitively in your life and you're like, God's trying to say something to you? For whatever reason, just one day you're like, why does this thing or this topic or this person or this situation keep popping up repeatedly, repeatedly? Maybe God's trying to teach me a lesson. So it was kind of ironic because we had met last week and we were talking about faith. And then we segued, right? So we had, we finished 1 Thessalonians last week and we had a week and I was like, this just seems like a perfect time to go over this. And it was funny because as I was studying to do this, I'm like having these like epiphanies as I'm writing. I'm like, my gosh, I needed to read all of these things for me. Because sometimes I think in our faith walk, we wonder ourselves, do I have enough faith? You can like fill in the blank at the end of that. Do I have enough faith? And like, what does that mean? Can you have enough faith? Where does your faith come from? Am I strong enough to have faith? Is it me who gives me faith or is it God who gives me faith? So there's like a lot of unanswered questions. So I think you'll find, like I said, this is relatively quick, but it's a big deal to know. Like I believe in God. I have faith in him as the provider of my salvation. What does that mean that I have faith in him? So um, since we've prayed already, let's jump right into this. So new recap today because this will be a new topic but like I said, I'm encountering it a lot lately. The question really is, do you have enough faith? So what does it mean? What is the amount of faith that you need for whatever? To be saved, to be healed, to get your kids to behave, to make your marriage better, to make your work life better, to get a pay raise. Do I have enough faith? And is that even biblical to think that you can have enough faith to make something move right so uh, i want to go we're not going to go on a church bashing spree but just there are churches there are pastors preachers teachers telling people that the quality or quantity of their faith is somehow tied to how they're living their lives like people actually say this we were talking about it last week right um somebody will say to you like you know you're not being healed because you don't have enough faith Your bank account hasn't worked itself out yet because your faith isn't strong enough. There's people who actually espouse this from pulpits, right? Whether it's praying for physical healing or situations or stress or finances or marriages or kids, people are actually teaching that the quality or quantity of your faith has something to do with your current temporal situation, right? Whatever that case, they're being told that their answers are not prayer, that they don't possess enough of it. Well, that's completely unbiblical. It's a lie. That's not the way faith works and it's important to understand why that is not true because you don't want people believing in your circle i don't have enough faith to get across whatever that hump is and then they essentially lose heart in who god is this is really about who god is not about who we are right we we tend to forget that we put ourselves in a position where we have to keep reaching to him you gotta remember we didn't go on a mission to find god It's God who sent his son to rescue us. It's him who's the provider of this. So let's tackle this issue and find out if you and I have enough faith, okay? And we're going to start out by defining what faith is. And I know 
some of this is going to be a little bit of a recap because we've hit a couple of these before because as we talk about Paul's faithfulness and Paul's prayerfulness, you will hit some of these things, but we're going to drill down on it specifically today. So there's one specific verse that stands out as the definition of faith, and we covered this a couple of weeks ago. And as we correlate it to our belief in the Lord, listen to the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Listen to what it says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this gives it a qualitative factor, right? Faith is not some wishy-washy belief. And I know guys that I've talked to from the non-believer perspective, when I will talk to them about my hope, my faith, my belief, they'll be like, well, you just believe that. I could believe anything. But what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that faith is not some magical thing it says here faith is assurance it is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen it is knowing that we are saved it is knowing that he came for us it is knowing that the bible is true it is knowing that he was crucified and on the third day rose from the grave and 40 days later ascended into heaven that he died for all of our sins it is assurance in all these things and that's really important this is the faith that we have it is not some sort of wishy-washy soft feel-good thing even when you're not happy your faith can still be strong even when you're not joyful your faith can still be strong even when life is not great your faith can still be strong it is separated from some strange belief like i believe we're going to go to lunch somewhere today that's that's just it's it's completely different than a, a loose belief so before we really break it down let's go to the old testament let's build a foundation for what faith looks like so you got to go back got to go back to the old days right go back to the old testament um and the reality is when you go back there's no real word um in the old testament or in the old testament hebrew that translates exactly to the word faith okay but we do have a word that is used that means the same type of assurance or the same type of trust okay and um, that word is a word called aman aman in hebrew and we see this word is one of the most in one of the most famous verses in the bible when Moses records the story of Abraham, remember the story of Father Abraham? You may have sung, sung, sang the song to your kids at some point in time, Father Abraham has many sons, right? The fathers of the Hebrew faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham, the father, listen to this, from Genesis 16, he says about his faith in verse 6, then he believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. He believed, Amman. He had faith. There was an assurance. There was a trust in the Lord. He knew that the Lord was the provider of life. He knew that the Lord was the provider of his salvation. He knew it was the Lord who was going to care for him. It was not just a loose belief like where Am I going to end up because God has sent me on this journey? He knew the Lord was going to take care of him. 
And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So it is because of that faith that Abraham is considered righteous. It's because of that faith Abraham is considered saved, right? Abraham was saved by his faith in the Lord. And even the New Testament writers recognize that Abraham's faith, as it's recorded in uh, Romans 4.3, Romans 4.22, Galatians 3.6, and James 2.23, all really important to understand that Abraham was saved by his faith. So if we apply Abraham's faith to the verse in Hebrews that we mentioned before, we're going to see that Abraham had this deep assurance in the Lord. He was hopeful that the Lord would be faithful. He was convicted that the Lord would care for him. He fully trusts in God, right? So in the whole of the Old Testament, that, that word is used to describe faith in the Lord, faith in false gods, lack of faith, and it even describes God's assurance for our, our salvation. So that, Lord, that word, Amman, is used in a number of ways, and it all has to do with this assurance. So I want to draw your attention to this verse in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, 7. And I love this verse, and I want you to listen closely. You don't have to turn there, because it'll just be the one verse. By the time you get there, we'll be done. But listen closely to see if you can find the word that correlates with the word faith. Now, remember, I said, this is the Old Testament, so there's not a word that's going to translate specifically faith. But I'm going to read Psalm 19.7, and in your head as you're listening, try to determine which word translates as faith. You ready? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. Let me read it one more time. Think of it, just let me slow it down. Which word here means faith or assurance? Okay? The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. What do you think it is? Close, very close. There's a lot of words that are close to each other in this one, but the word is actually, do you know it? You want to say it? Anybody? It's sure. It's sure. So the word aman here is sure. The Lord's testimony is sure. It's firm. It's solid. There's an assurance of salvation that comes from the Lord to those who are in him. So now listen to it. Let's put the word faith in here. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is faithful. You get that? Making the wise simple. What he says to us, we can rely on. It is assured. It's perfect. So now let us move forward. We'll tell you, we've looked at the foundation of aman, of faithfulness, of assurance. And we'll move forward into the New Testament and we'll take a look at what it means there. So the perfect place to start, you, you guys and I, we've already gone through. And that's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And we've talked about this a few times. And it's one of the best places to go to see what faith is, where you get it, how you get it, how you keep it, all that kind of stuff. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You should almost know this by heart. When you start to hear it, your, your mouth will start moving. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. <clears throat> right? I'm going to read that one more time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast, right? So the word that is used for faith here is the word pistis. Common word used in the New Testament for faith, pistis. Strong um, describes this word as this. Listen to this definition. Especially, or yeah, especially reliance upon Christ for salvation. So instead of just plain hoping for it or just plain old wishing for it, this is a special reliance on Christ. I have faith in Christ because I am relying on him to provide my salvation. It's not a simple belief, but understanding that we rely on the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our sinfulness. It is his power that does it. That means this faith is not coming just from within. This faith is something that Christ is giving us, he's filling us with. It's an assurance. He's telling you it's going to happen, and because of his position and his authority as God, it is him that fills us with this faith. That's good news for me. I don't know about you, but I know as weak a man as I am, when I know that the God who created everything can say, I'm going to give you assurance that I'm coming to rescue you, that's a lot better than me just hoping it's going to happen. This is a big deal. Another, um, excuse me, another reference in the New Testament is about an Old Testament figure, and it comes to us in Hebrews 11.4, and I want to read this verse as well, and you'll notice we'll jump around a little bit, but I think it's important because we're establishing this idea of what our faith is across it. The author of Hebrews in 11.4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice to him more acceptable, excuse me, sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now you guys remember the study of Cain and Abel. Everybody's heard the words Cain and Abel before. So this is the first murder in the Bible. So Cain and Abel both bring their sacrifices to the Lord and Abel gives an offering that's acceptable and Cain brings an offering that's unacceptable and God scorns him for it. What does Cain do? Does anybody remember? What? In a nutshell, go all the way to the end. What does Cain do to Abel? He stones. He kills him, right? So he murders his brother, right? Because So you're right. They have this contentiousness, and Cain is mad because he's like, why didn't you accept my gift? You accepted my brother's gift. Now I'm mad at you. And he does some trickery, and then he kills him. It's the first murder recorded. And actually, it was, this is where we really see uh, the uh, existentialism of sinfulness start to play out in humankind. I mean, these are Adam and Eve's kids. So we're going to start seeing people be really bad to one another. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, found Cain's unsuccessful. Out of jealousy, out of anger, he turns against his brother. But it's not the, the sacrifice that was acceptable. Listen to that verse at the beginning. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So it doesn't say he brought more. Think about what we talked about at the beginning. How much faith do you have? Do you have enough faith? It does not say here, Abel brought more. It doesn't say here, Abel brought a better 
sacrifice. It doesn't say here Abel put more money in the basket of church. It doesn't say here that Abel spent more time working in the children's ministry, working in the parking lot ministry, supporting the music ministry, um, whatever it is that you fill it with. It does not say that. Let me read it. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. What does that mean? In a nutshell, he came to him relying on God totally for his salvation. He came to him knowing that it is God that provides for him. So I'm going to return to God with my best. I'm giving God my best. Why? Because God loves me and he has given his best for me. That's it. Very simple. No preconceptions about what God is going to do because I bring more. I don't get more out because I gave more money. I don't get more out because I gave more time. That's not the way God works. It's not a thing. It's not the sacrifice itself that was satisfactory. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was Abel's faith that made his sacrifice acceptable. So this is really applicable to our Christian walk, and this is where we'll get into how practical it is. When we do things, say things, pray, serve, give, it should be done knowing that we serve a good God. We serve a good God. He loves us. Look at, look at this. We were talking about it last week. Imagine the places in the world we could be sitting right now, and we are right here, right now. Sun is out. Kids are healthy. We're going to go have Rodinos for lunch. I mean... Life is pretty good for us. We could be in a lot of places in the world right now where we would not be able to spread the gospel like we do today. We could be in a lot of places in the world right now where if we went to lunch and bowed our heads, held hands, and prayed, that we would be thought of as poorly for that. Or people actually get killed for that. Right? This is a pretty good place to be, and we should be joyful in that. We should be thankful for what we have. It, Right? When we do things, say things, pray, serve, give, it should be done knowing we serve a good God, righteous, loving God, and not for our own satisfaction. We do it because he's a good God, right? If you keep reading in Hebrews and you go to verse uh, 7 in chapter 11, the author says this about Noah. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for saving his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteous that comes by faith. So this could be a whole other length, lengthy study because you could get into a lengthy study about Noah and how that works. You guys may have heard some of that before. But do you see the basic premise here? And I think this is important for families because this speaks directly into Noah's family. Noah trusts God. He's completely surrendered to God. And even though he could not see the future, he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He doesn't know what's going to happen. All of the people are picking on him because they're like, oh, you trust in this God. It's not going to rain. Nothing's going to happen. And Noah's just head down, cutting up gopher wood and building a giant ship in the middle of a place where there's no water. And he is going to get this done because he has faith in God. And like Noah, we too become heirs of the righteousness that comes by faith. We become heirs to righteousness through Jesus Christ. Listen to that. I know I keep reading these over, but how big a deal this is. Think about your family and the way this goes. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. So imagine now you're a parent in a home and we're talking about the way you raise your kids, the way you raise your family in the Lord. By faith, Noah warned by God concerning events yet unseen. 
This is how we live our lives as parents. I have no idea what tomorrow, next week, next year is going to bring for my children. But by faith, I'm going to raise my kids in the knowledge and the understanding of his loving kindness and that he is coming to rescue them. And they should trust in them. But check this out. In reverent fear constructed an ark for saving his household. What an amazing thing is a parent to believe. Essentially, metaphorically, you're building an ark for your family. This is what we're doing. I am building this ark. Now, we're not going to need an ark because we don't need to be saved like that. But if you consider that as a parent, when you're building them up in the faith and giving them the truth of Jesus Christ in their life, you are essentially giving them a safe space for when storms come, they're able to lock themselves in to that faith and know that God is the rescuer, that Jesus Christ is the redeemer and that they are safe, that no matter how bad the storms get, they're good. They're covered. And we can go on and on about what faith is and how it applies. But I want to get to a very specific question that's important to all of us. Do you have enough of it? Do you have enough faith, right? I talked about earlier, there's a movement going around telling people that They're limited in their Christian walk due to their lack of faith, right? They can't be healed or made well or endure bad circumstances because of their lack of faith. So how do we answer that? How do you answer that if somebody says, well, maybe you don't have enough faith? So there's a few verses that can be taken out of context to get you to think there's a measure of faith necessary for healing or other sort of temporal needs. So let's talk about this. Matthew 9 and Mark 5. Both record a story of a woman. And in the story, it says she's hemorrhaging for 12 years, okay? The Greek interpretation of the word literally means she's having nonstop menses for 12 years, okay? Um, I would imagine that would be a pretty bad menstrual cycle. So nonstop for 12 years. Um, So it's like she's desperate. I mean... Obviously, not being a woman, I, I don't know how desperate she would be, but I would imagine this would be just awful, right? And of course, we're living in a different time where just even cleanliness was a different thing at that time. They didn't have you know, the same indoor plumbing and ability to clean that we have. So this woman is dealing with this terrible issue that has been plaguing her. She's desperate. Jesus is in a large crowd of people on his way to heal a little girl. He's walking through this crowd. People are crowding around him. And this woman reaches out to him. She had uh, sought care for decades. She had seen doctors and healers. And as Jesus is walking by, she reaches out and she touches his cloak. All she does is touch his cloak. More specifically, she touches his, what's called his craspadon, or what the Jews used to call the tzitzit. So this was a garment that they wore over them that had tassels on the end. It had corners that had tassels. And uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus feels the power leave his body as soon as she touches him. Power leaves his body. And he asks, who touched me? You imagine this, he's in a crowd and people just want this. They want healing. They want to know. And in, a, in an instant, somebody touches him and he stops. He says, who touched me? And when he finds the woman, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So there's, 
this idea for especially like the prosperity movement where they'll say, see, she had enough faith to know to reach to Jesus and touch him. It wasn't just out of her desperation, but it was more out of her knowing that he could save her. I mean, this, this woman's tried everything. The amount of faith. Because Christ says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. So the question is, did her faith heal her condition? Well, let's dig in a little bit. What did she touch? She touched the tzitzit, right? I told you this a little while ago. So this is a, a garment worn by the Jews. It's outlined back in the Old Testament in Numbers 15. And if you look at Numbers 15 and verses 37 to 41, it says this about that garment. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. She knew this. This lady's a Jew. She knows what this garment is. And she knows what this tzitzit means. She knows the corner of his garment is the representation of God saying, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. To not look on yourself, but to look on his divinity. She's making an appeal towards his divinity. She believes he has the power to heal her. That's it. She is desperate. And she's like, he's got the power to heal me. She believes in deliverance. She didn't have a bold approach. Can you imagine? Probably just being in public for this woman would have been awful. To be bleeding for 12 years and to make her way into a crowd of people. She's desperate. She didn't have a bold approach. She touches his garment as he passes, lost completely in the crowd. He has to actually look for her and ask for her. She's weak, she's desperate, and her faith is probably not measured as abounding, but most likely measured as anguished. So there's a similar example throughout Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 17, there's a story where Jesus heals 10 lepers all at one time. All these guys of leprosy was a big deal back then. They'd make them live outside the camp and they have the ritual cleanings for their welcome back in. There's all this stuff, right? They stand at a distance from Jesus when they approach him. They stand at a distance like a desperate leper would and not getting too close. And they ask him for mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. And Jesus tells him, your faith has made you well. The blind man in Luke 18 tells Jesus, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Matthew 8 and Matthew 15, we see Jesus heal the centurion's servant and the possessed little girl and both reference the recipient's faith for their healing. But does it mean they had a certain measure of faith that created the healing? And that's really the question today. The common word that we see in every one of these things is this Greek word where Christ has healed the afflicted. The Greek word is this word called sozo. Sozo. And interestingly, the word does not mean that they were simply made well. That's, it's hard to translate it well, but it, God, you know, in the English, as Jesus said, you know, your faith has made you well. Sozo in the sense that he gave them sight or took away their leprosy or made them able to walk. 
It's not quite like that. Listen closely to the definition of the word sozo from Strong's Concordance. Listen to this. It says, properly deliver out of danger and into safety. Properly deliver out of danger and into safety used principally of God rescuing believers from the penalty of sin and into his provisions. So when it says, Jesus said, I made you well, what does it mean? Does it mean he took away leprosy? It means he saved their soul. It means their faith has saved their life. Like Abraham's faith is accounted to him as righteousness. Yes, he did the miracle. Yes. Yes, he healed them. There were many healed by Christ during his earthly ministry and delivered and rescued from the penalty of sin. And in a nutshell, they were saved by Jesus' grace through faith, not their works and not the measure of their faith, not how much they had. So then why'd Jesus heal him at all? Couldn't Jesus have just, the woman in the crowd touched him and he just looked at her and said, today I'll see you in paradise? Like he does to the other sinner that is on the cross that is next to him. He could have easily just said, you know, you're going to suffer with your affliction until you're dead, but you're going to heaven. He could have. He's God. He could do whatever he wants. But the answer is clear in Matthew 8, 17. Jesus had just healed the mother-in-law of the potter then had cast out many demons and spirits. And in this, Matthew records this. Jesus healing, casting out demons, saving people from their afflictions. It says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken about through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our disease. You see, the prophecy says he's going to heal people. So Jesus is walking around basically saying, I am God and I am here to take away your sin. And they are coming to him thinking it's just about their infirmities. And Jesus is doing both. He's saying, you're right, I am divine. I am God and I love you. And he's healing them of their infirmities. I mean, he's saving their life eternally. It was for a sign for people to see and go, it is God. It is him. Only he has the power to do this and the apostles for a short period of time. This healing ministry was short. It's the fulfillment of this prophecy, fulfillment of scripture, proof that he's the Messiah, proof he is divine. It's another way that we know he's Jesus. We have proof of it. And why? Because when we read it out of this book, it means we have eyewitness testimony of Christ actually doing this. And I want to convey on a side note that this argument to lack of faith is often related to healing. So if you look at these whack job churches that talk about you don't have enough faith, usually it's tied to healing. Why? Because you can create some sort of subjective scenario where I can make one of your legs longer. Or, you know, I feel somebody in the crowd has cancer in them and boom, you're healed and nobody could ever know, right? I mean, you can create a scenario where you can create some fake magic and we're not going to drill down deep on that but the reality is that the apostolic ministry is over and those healings are not taking place anymore that is just it is absolute hogwash that somebody would do that to people and it's people essentially stealing money i'm not saying we shouldn't pray for healing because i do believe god heals god can do the miraculous if he can create the universe then he can heal your infirmity he can do that 
Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for it. We should pray for it because we should pray for everything. And I'm not saying that miracles can't happen because obviously they can because I've seen miracles in my own life. But what I am saying is that there are heretical teachers that will tell you you're not being healed or they're not healing others due to your lack of faith. And it's just, it's a lie. So how much faith do you need? We keep asking this question. How much faith do you need? This is how much. The faith of a mustard seed. Why the mustard seed? Anybody know why? Because mustard seeds are super small. Because mustard seeds are so small. This is what he uses. He uses this tiny, the tiniest of tiny seeds to describe that's how much faith you need to move a mountain. Now the context of that is a little different, but it's understandable when you apply it to your life, like that mustard seed can move mountains. That's how much faith you need. So you look at a giant mountain and you look at your tiniest of faith, but what's the other thing about the mustard seeds? Anybody know what it grows into? A mustard tree. And how big is a mustard tree? It takes many, many years and it grows into this giant bush-like tree that sometimes they're like 40 feet tall and 40 feet across. This big, giant, huge, robust bush that they actually make mustard out of as a spice in the Middle East. This giant, robust structure grows from this tiny, the tiniest of seeds, one of the tiniest of them all. Faith, though, so small. So how much faith do you need? The faith is so small, but it's almost impossible to get your hand around. It's the starting point for all believers, small faith. But it's faith that grows, it's faith that flourishes, and it's faith that's tested. It's always tested. It will endure seasons, and by the power of Christ it prevails, not just by your own doing. The scriptures are very clear that the measure of our faith is not related to our temporal situation at all. So when you feel like you're defeated, and you feel like your faith just isn't enough, be assured that he is faithful. When the stress of life seems heavy to bear, know that his yoke is light. When you've prayed and fasted for healing, for closure, for your finances, for salvation, for friends or family, know that he is sovereign over all things in your life. God is in control. God is in charge. He's got it. It's a good thing I'm not in charge. Trust me, you want God in charge. I would certainly mess it up. This quote by R.C. Sproul says this about faith. Think about this as you go to Christ for the things in your life. It says, faith that brings us to Christ is a faith that has with it a broken and contrite heart. I don't know where you were at when you decided to get saved, but my heart was so incredibly broken and I was so contrite and I was so upside down, I could not have generated the faith on my own. It took the Holy Spirit reaching through the bones of my chest, squeezing my heart so hard that it would not beat anymore, and telling me, you need me. And that is the planting of the mustard seed. That tiny bit of faith where I said, I know I do, and I will give it to you. Take comfort in these words from the author of Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I think that is our starting point for faith today. Believe in him, 
seek him and through that faith we will be he will be pleased with you he will reward you with eternal salvation because his true reward is in heaven father god i am thankful for you and i just pray that this message of faith would reach these people today as it is a message that i needed lord to be reminded that my faith comes from you, to be reminded that when I feel like my faith is small, that that faith still rests in an almighty God, a God who can do anything, a God who is sovereign, a God who is faithful, a God who is loving, a God who is consistent. And in those times when I am not consistent and I am not loving and my life is not right and I'm not loving my wife right and I am not a good worker and I am not a good friend, that I just remember that in all those things, he is consistent always and loves me. He loves my wife. He loves my children. He loves my friends. He loves this church and he wants to see us flourish and he wants to see us grow and he is going to pour into us through the washing of his word. I am encouraged today that in our community we can make a difference because we know God is on the throne. And we are going to share your holy name with everyone that we see. We're going to be seen praying. We are going to be seen loving. And people are going to see us loving one another. We love you, Lord, and we're thankful for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And it is in his holy name that we pray. Amen.